Hello everyone, welcome back to A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and our department. Today you have a conversation to listen to from two members of our department. They're both cultural anthropologists and they both study some aspect of migration. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to them. Thanks. Hi, I'm Natalia Zatova. I'm a PhD student and a cultural anthropologist. And I do research among migrants uh, who come from Central Asia, which is the former territory of the Soviet Union, and they come to settle here in the United States. And I also do research among them in their sending countries, home countries, and sending communities to understand better their experiences here and how they communicate across borders, share information, ideas, monies, and remittances. So this is what my research is about. And also, I think that I'm interested in how they settle in the new countries and how also they act within those broader social and political and economic structures that can shape their experiences in the new environment. I'm Kelly Yotiving. Um I'm also a PhD student in cultural anthropology here at Ohio State. Um, I wouldn't say my research is on migration, but I'm working with migrants on um, several issues. So I work with refugees that are based in Central Africa and more specifically Cameroon. And I came back to anthropology after spending about 11 years working um, after my master's in public health in the humanitarian sector. And I became more and more interested in the social, emotional, and political determinants of health, especially as it relates to forced migration um, or f people who are forced to flee. And I guess I have similar research questions, though, is I'm interested in how communities reorganize themselves after an experience like that, and especially outside of the refugee camp, because a lot of refugee research and programs take place in the refugee camp, but the majority of the world's refugees are living in cities in developing countries, including Central Asia and um, Central Africa. Right. So I wanted to focus there. To talk about migration, I think I can start with that we commonly understand migration as something huge, probably, or something dangerous, and there are lots of misconceptions around migration. I think that both in general public and in the media, because migrants come to, to be understood and represented in terms of like huge population blocks or lumps or chunks, like uh, all Latinos or all Asian Americans, big cubes or blocks. And I think that this is the logic of population censuses, because this is the language of censuses when people have to choose some race and some ancestry group that they belong to. And then that language is, comes to be uh, represented in the media, in the speeches of the politicians and everywhere, I think. And I think this language is very specific, not to say that this is hate speech, mm -hmm. but this is something close to that, because you can hear the words like a wave of migrants or a tide of migrants or those like dangerous aliens who come to steal our jobs. Everything is in quotation marks. Yeah, I think you understand. And also you can hear like mm -hmm. they are criminals and this is a threat to our community. So this is how it is commonly understood. And you see obvious examples in the presidential campaign now, for instance, in the words of the presidential candidate, Donald Trump. Yeah, I agree with you. I. I feel like there's a lot of tendency to lump immigrants together in, in this one group or a couple of categories, and there definitely is not very much homogeneity in um, this population, even just 
looking at our two populations, they probably have very little in common. Um, even at my research site in Yaoundé, which is the capital of Cameroon, there's urban refugees from 35 different countries there. So even when I initially wanted to, to focus on urban refugees, I quickly realized that I couldn't do something really broad with all 35 countries, and I needed to focus on a specific issue within one community because everybody had come at different times, they'd come with different resources, some of them had come from rural to urban, um, some of them had come from other cities that were even from what they considered to be um, more developed than where they went to, and some of them have legal status and some don't. But at the same time, I um, another misconception that I hear a lot of, especially in regards to refugees, on top of the the more recent kind of criminalization and the links with extremism, there's also a lot of talk on just vulnerability and helplessness and the idea that refugees are just waiting in camps for handouts. And the majority of refugees that I've worked with are not really receiving very many, um, any handouts for any support from service provider agencies. And they're actively rebuilding and changing their family situations, their jobs, and this is why I decided to focus on urban refugees in the context of my research, which is mostly on resilience and trying mm -hmm. to understand basically how people continue after living through adverse effects, how it changes them, and how they conceive of and build well-being in their lives. Because I don't think it's always dictated uh, by the handouts that, right, I'm pretty sure it's not dictated by the handouts that the social service providing agencies give to them. I think I agree, and I think that we as cultural anthropologists are so lucky to be in this field to see mm -hmm. all those details and get the nuanced account, and anthropology is so humanistic, I think so. <laughs> that is great for us to be here. And I think it is also important to see people, as you say, behind that umbrella terms of migrants or refugees, because those are people with their own expectations, plans, hopes, dreams, and even personal dramas and success stories, of course. And the lens of anthropology help us to understand migration, I think, as a mosaic. And let me give you an example from my own research. Um, mm -hmm. I work, do research in New York City, which is the uh, huge metropolitan area, but if I ask you what you think about when you hear like, New York City, I think you, you, you might say, like, is it a financial capital, global financial capital, or is it a, a huge metropolitan area, or is it just a place where normal Americans won't go to live at? In. <laughs> so, the, but to me, it is a city of people, and many of them are migrants, and some statistics here that foreign-born people, like migrants of the first generation, make around 40% of all population of New York City. And the share of foreign births, like births to foreign-born mothers, is even larger. So about six in every 10 New Yorkers are either foreign-born themselves or are children of migrants. And this is a part of uh, that population mosaic, which is I'm interested in. And maybe you have heard about an, an interesting project, Humans of New York City, mm -hmm. which is what started by an anthropologist that is cool and they tell like photo stories of those people, Syrian refugees who, who come and settle there and, and this is getting us closer I think to humanistic understanding of people's stories. Yeah, beautiful. That's uh, similar. I think anthropology has a lot of value to add in helping to break down those kind of simple ideas of migration that a lot of people hold yeah. 
And even when I talk with other scholars about the fact that I'm working on with migrants, they're like, oh, you're a migration scholar. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. But it is part of my work because I can't just say I'm working with all urban refugees when this represents I don't know how many millions of people. Mm -hmm. Because less than 1% of uh, refugees in the world are resettled in developed countries like, like the United States and Canada although a huge focus of the research is there. And over 60% of the world's, this is from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, um, 19.5 million refugees and 80% of 34 million internally displaced persons, so people who are displaced within their own countries, live in urban environments and not Mm -hmm. camps. So I think refugees are maybe a subset of migrants and in immigration, but even within that, we need to break down how we talk about refugees because it's not um, a single story. All right, what's behind the definition of the refugee? How do we understand refugees then? Well, I think the very simple definition from um, the 1951 Geneva Convention is that a refugee is somebody who has migrated and crossed an international border. And the crossing an international Mm -hmm. border piece is important because other people might um, deal with the same thing but not cross a border and we call them internally displaced persons but once they cross an international border because they're fleeing conflict persecution um, or fear for their lives then when they enter that new country they become a refugee but there's also that's kind of in the identity aspect of being a refugee there's also a legal and political aspect because you're not automatically given a paper that says you're a refugee as Mm -hmm. soon as you cross the border. It depends on which border you crossed and what that country's um, different laws are. So in most countries, you have to apply within a certain amount of time for asylum seeker status Mm -hmm. to be a refugee. And if it's accepted, you get your papers and you also are a card-carrying refugee. But a lot of the refugees I'm working with were refused their asylum seeking status. So they still consider themselves refugees, but they actually have no paper that says they're refugees. So they're sort of occupying this limbo between um, being refugees, being Rwandans, being foreigners, being immigrants. Mm -hmm. But because of what they they fled, they consider themselves to be refugees. So it's also not a very clear, I think when we talk about it, we think of people who cross the border, but not even within that have people fleeing the same thing. Some of them may be um, given refugee status and others may not in sort of a subjective process of oftentimes government bureaucracy in the country that they work, that they arrive in. Right. I think I can agree with that, that there is a lot of conu- confusion around status and documentary status with migrants as well, because migrants are thought to be migrants if they according to the United Nations definition, they cross international borders and stay within the country not not less than 12 months, which is a big period, but people can come and go, people people can settle, people can leave the country due to different conditions or family situations. So this is getting really complicated to think of who migrant is. But people like normally understand migration as migrant, a person who moved from like point A to point B, so this is like a line, direct line drawing, (laughs) uh, pointing at some direction. So this is not always true, I think, this is about. And people also have different documents and Mm -hmm. their status, legal status shapes, really shapes their lives, their opportunities, because it defines whether they can get a job or 
be able to cross the border and come back to the country or they would be like rejected or denied the access to the country so the piece of paper the documents that you talked about mm -hmm. this is really important in their lives and this is something strange to think about yeah and I think the the piece of papers can be really interesting too because it can change over time right. so you could start with one legal status and have it morph into another one depending on um, on your situation. So for example, if you're a refugee and then there's peace back in your country, mm -hmm. what happened recently with the Rwandan refugees amongst others was since the country has stabilized from the situation that it was in in the mid to late 90s, there was a cessation clause that was evoked by the United Nations in um, Geneva, which basically said that all of those initial refugees mm -hmm. should just go back home. Mm if they you know, hadn't become citizens in another country or something. But if they were holding refugee papers, they shouldn't really be allowed to have those anymore. So now people are kind of in a situation where they see themselves as refugees. Mm -hmm. They might have the papers or they might not, but they're being told that they shouldn't be anymore. And the political forces are kind of wanting them to go home and to be Rwandans again. Mm -hmm. But I think the difference with a lot of refugees is with those um, links back home, like what you were talking about with some of your migrants, they probably have links with family and stuff back home, but they may not have, if they've been gone for 20 years, mm. there may be a paved road where there used to be a dirt road. Somebody's probably living in their house if it's still standing. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of changes that happen that make it really difficult to, to go back home. But people do kind of maintain connections with home and, and um, give maybe if they're working in a certain area send money back home and you talked about yeah. remittances for right for example okay i think that might that might happen the situation with refugees in europe as well mm -hmm. right because depending on the politics in germany said that it would accept but people might go back when mm -hmm. the situation improves mm -hmm. but the people might not have the place to go back exactly. or the house is destroyed due to war and something yeah this is heartbreaking mm -hmm. to think of mm -hmm. So one of the mis other misconceptions that you talked about was um, that kind of the idea that migrants are all coming to take our jobs. And that kind of resonated with me too, because I hear, I hear that a lot in Yaoundé. Mm -hmm. It's um, a city in a, I guess, a large, or a large developing country. I don't even like using that word, but in Central Africa that has high unemployment in the formal sector. So a lot of people are contributing in the informal sector. And what amazes me is how quickly a lot of the urban refugees that I've been able to, um, to meet and work with over, over my time um, in the field have quickly started up and started contributing to the informal sector. So I see them more contributing to the economy than taking away. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree. I think migrants make huge economic contributions to the society as they settle here because a lot of research there is a lot of research that shows that migrants are usually more internal uh, than local populations they like are prone to start small businesses and open like ethnic cafes bakeries car washes or car repair outlets and many other businesses and i think that that allows the economics to grow and gives also gives people jobs that they need so much. And also think about that migrants pay taxes here in the United States, both federal taxes and local taxes, which also helps economics to grow and supports, for instance, senior citizens, because 
those pensions come from taxes that is pretty obvious i think and let us if you think about columbus where we live in i think you all have various local ethnic cafes that you like to dine at mm -hmm. to go to and main, mainly they are opened by migrants operated by migrants and so migration gives you a chance to experience diversity and even try great foods mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and there was a recent report which um was done by a couple of re refugee resettlement agencies and i think sponsored by the state in Ohio that looked at refugees specifically. So mm -hmm. not all migrants, but I think they, they did Columbus, have a few statistics right? uh -huh. about migrants as uh -huh. well in them. Um, I think it was in the whole state of Ohio and okay. their, it might've just been Columbus, but their contribution to the economy. And the findings were that, um, again, refugees and migrants are c contributing enormously to the, to the economy. And even some neighborhoods that were previously depressed, like the mm -hmm. Northland area, the, a lot of immigrants came in and kind of revitalized these areas mm -hmm. and breathed new life and job opportunities into these areas. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And there is also, I think, a lot of debate around remittances because remittances is the money that people might think people, migrants take from our economy, from the American economy and send back home. Um, but it's not quite correct because remittances support their standing households and reduce poverty and allow family members to do a lot of things, like to give education to kids, to send them to schools, to provide better housing, better food which mm -hmm. is really important and reduces like health burdens and uh, it allows to get better health outcomes for sending communities and also like if we think broader uh, my remittances make such a huge share in many in the gdp in gross domestic product of many sending countries and this is really important because for many developing countries think about that remittances make a larger share of gdp than aid from foreign aid companies mm -hmm. and those aid comes from taxes eventually right mm -hmm. from the budget from the government of the most developed nations so this is a huge part of that i think and this is also a big uh, very important for the economics of the countries that send migrants and for instance i, I can give an example of tajikistan where i did my research um, it sends a lot of migrants to russia because it is close and people come to work there and live there and send money back home so tajikistan was ranked for a number of years the first um among in the in the world among all countries uh, according to its share of remittances in the gdp so think about that about 40% of the national GDP is made by people's remittances. So those mm -hmm. small drops, those small like remittances that living people send back home, they create such a huge share of the economics. Yeah, I definitely see that a lot in the countries that, um, that I'm working in as well, and especially in Cameroon. So a lot of the Rwandan refugees have family that were mm -hmm. part of that less, less than 1% that were resettled. Mm -hmm. And so they, they might be living in um, the United States or Canada and with their spare savings are able to send money back home. And this is what has allowed them to be able to open those stores and the kind of informal settlements around town mm -hmm. and um, to contribute to the economy. So it helps to, to link different countries together. And also, I think once you become a migrant, you're not, it doesn't mean that you, you become part of a larger diaspora network. Yeah. and that's really an important part of their identity as well. So I don't know how it is with your mm -hmm. research participants, but um, 
with the Rwandans, I know that those who are refugees in Africa, I was really surprised actually, in several countries across mm -hmm. Africa, they have like a network where they all talk to each other regularly to learn about what maybe a community is doing in one country, how mm -hmm. they're dealing with the cessation mm -hmm. clause, how they're doing with dealing with different laws, and if anyone needs any help, and they kind of support each other in mm -hmm. that way. And I think this is um, just a really beautiful side of our work that we, d we would just miss if we're only looking at, you know, who's receiving yeah. <laughs> this money th from the government, who's receiving yeah. maybe uh, social services yeah. or, yeah. Those kinds of Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, that works for migrants as well, because there are huge m networks that can s provide help and support, because people with the problematic legal status don't get support, any mm. support from the government, where they settle in, from the country where they settle in. So this is mm -hmm. a huge part of their social support, those yeah. networks. That's right. So why do you why did you choose anthropology to study these questions? Uh, I think this is the humanistic part of it because mm -hmm. you can also choose sociology and it does a lot of research among migrants, I think. But mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's like big population blocks, as I said. And here, uh, if you choose anthropology, you become yourself a part of that mosaic population mosaic because you listen to stories of people you participate you get invitations to someone's places you go to celebrations weddings whatever and this is so exciting i think sometimes difficult exhausting and often heartbreaking because you listen to those stories of like raging poverty and inequalities that push people to migration but i think it's also rewarding and really interesting and I think that when you become a part of that network, maybe you even might become friends on Facebook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you get to know so many people, you get notebooks full of scratches or numbers, phone numbers. You, you even carry gifts across borders if people ask you to do so. So you become a part of that population networks, which is also exciting. And I think that it also influences your worldview because I think I'm with the anthropology for such a long time that I can say that I have really changed. Um, it is not getting sentimental, I think, because you hear those heartbreaking stories very often, but this is about being um, open to people's stories, mm -hmm. about being reflective about what you do in your life and in the world, maybe, and how you contribute to people and to their, I don't know, lives probably. Uh, mm -hmm. And also it allows you to see, when you open your heart to people's stories, you also see the broader picture behind that, like broader inequalities, broader social issues. This is a part of our training as anthropologists, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think getting, that's part of the reason why I came back to anthropology mm -hmm. after public health was, I felt like we weren't getting the deeper side of the story yeah. just from um, doing kind of what was more typical in public health, which was kind of surveys, maybe a focus group here yeah. and there. But in reality, a lot of the problems that we were dealing with were messy and the world <laughs> is a messy place. And if you can't actually take the time to spend with communities um, where they're living and where they're working and trying to figure out what are the problems, because even once I, I had ideas that I had jotted down for what I wanted to do hmm. for my dissertation, and it was only after I got to the field that oh. I really kind of modified and solidified them because 
you had to be there and to understand how, what people were actually dealing with. And I think if you go in with a survey, you don't have as much um, latitude to do that because you just go in and start asking questions and you don't necessarily listen or, and look to see if this is the most relevant problem or how people define these questions as well. So I found that to be something that was really appealing to going back to anthropology rather than, than staying in public health for, for my doctoral studies. Oh, this is interesting. So how did you start with your research? Was it observation or something? Yes, yeah. So I did participant observation, which is, as you know, kind of a signature technique in anthropology. So I already had worked with this community before as mm -hmm. a humanitarian and working in the public health area. So I recontacted them and told them that I'm coming back and I want to spend time with them. Um, and I'm, I don't have a specific project that I'm implementing anymore, mm -hmm. that I'm doing my, my okay. PhD in anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just spent three months spending all my days with them, okay. spending time with their families, them spending time with mine. Mm -hmm. And it was through this that it was a little bit formal at first, so especially refugees often mm -hmm. are used to telling their story right off the bat in oh. this very structured mm -hmm. way, because that's what you need to do to get refugee status mm -hmm. and to convince the government authorities that your story does qualify you as a refugee. Mm -hmm. But after you got to know people, you kind of learned a lot more about the, the different challenges that they were facing and how they were coping with that. And I really wanted to focus on the aspect of how people were coping with their challenges. But in order to do that, I needed to understand their challenges first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now you have a better idea of what the challenges are. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. That was a great conversation, you guys. I think you really brought in the humanistic perspective of anthropology with the stories of real people, their lives, and some of the more complicated aspects of the human experience. So. Thank you so much to talk for talking with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. For those of you listening, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. And like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU. Or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu.